Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 55. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, I'm presenting to you an unedited, uninterrupted, mostly truthful, and occasionally apocryphal chat with author David Shields. David and I recently met for a Saturday brunch at the famous Lower East Side Jewish restaurant Russ and Daughters to discuss his latest book and latest film. The conversation wound up incorporating David's views on life, We talked about the most recent election cycle. We talked about his experiences working with both James Franco and Keegan-Michael Key, and also his personal sense of Judaism and his childhood. By the end of our chat, David and I came to the realization that no matter what we do, we are each other. I don't mean that just between David and I. I mean that in this world, we are each other. Before I go on, if this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls and would like to subscribe, please do so at iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls or by following us at SoundCloud by searching for at The Wallbreakers. We're also on all social media outlets at The Wallbreakers or on the web also at thewallbreakers.com. To check out our line of New York City Unity t-shirts, please go to jamesthewallbreaker.com shop. Thanks again to all the people who purchased one of these t-shirts and snapped a photo of themselves wearing one. I appreciate that very much. The New York Times and the U.S. government are in a weird synchronicity. They sort of are working hand in glove. The Times wants access to the highest levels of the U.S. government. The government uses the time as a kind of mouthpiece for its own policies. And I saw that the government's courting the Times, the Times is courting the government, creates a very problematic symbiosis in my view. And so there's, those are some of the reasons. I mean, these aren't obscure reasons. If the Times every day ran unbelievably bloody visceral pics on the front cover, probably subscriptions would fall precipitously. I do think there is a middle ground between, on the one hand, unbelievably violent, grotesque images and flag-waving and cheerleading pictures. In a way, it's kind of friendly fire for me. It's a sort of lover's quarrel with the Times. You know, I like those Times pictures to be more aware of the undercurrents of the message they're sending. I mean, as recently as November 12th, which would have been, I guess, Thursday. It was this, to me, stunning photograph on the front page of the Times. Again, I'm not subscribing, but I'm seeing these pictures on newsstand. Is this amazing picture of these uh, a burial? I believe I forget exactly what country. I think probably Syria. And the picture is a, a burial of some wounded civilians. It's the front page lead color picture on Thursday, November 12. And the picture is of four stunningly beautiful Middle Eastern women burying the, I believe, sort of Syrian civilians. And it looks like a sort of, it's basically war photo as fashion shoot. Right. Like these women, they look like they just stepped out of the most elegant fashion shoot. And that picture to me is, I mean, that's my book. War in this picture seems beautiful. Why is the picture always of a stunningly beautiful woman? 
What complicated mixed messages? The clip is that, that you just sending? heard was from the first time I met David in November of 2015 when I spoke with him about his previous novel, War is Beautiful. David was a longtime New York Times subscriber, and he began to notice something amiss with the cover page war photography on the New York Times. When his curiosity got the better of him, he began to comb through two decades worth of front page A1 photography and found that almost all, without exception, fit into some cleverly guarded thematic buckets of art direction. It was a fascinating eye-opener. The chat with David is available, by the way, on episodes number 29 and 30 of Breaking Walls, and it's possibly worth a listen before this conversation so that you can get to know him and my relationship with him a little bit better. I appreciate in both of our chats David's candor, as especially his desire to feel more human and more connected with the world. And that's really the, one of the main themes to his latest film, I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel. It was directed by James Franco, and for this film, David spent an isolated weekend with a friend and former student named Caleb. Caleb and David are two intelligent human beings who just seem to have the exact opposite points of view on most things. And this film is about what happens when you put two opposite people together and force them to openly discuss their points of view on life. David's most recent book, Other People Take Some Mistakes, it's a fast read. It's out now. I absolutely recommend it. It's an accounting of childhood. It's a reveal of memories long past. It's a look at relationships. And it's a well-collected book of life advice. I've been wanting to chat with David all throughout 2016. He normally lives in Seattle. Obviously, I'm in New York City. But I wanted to chat with him because he's the kind of man who notices these subtle details. And I was noticing things during my time working for the Dow Jones in the run-up, in the middle of the election cycle. That's where I was working. So I was seeing lots of news, and there were things that were catching my attention that I wanted to hear David's opinion on about the election cycle, about Hillary Clinton, about Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, etc. I don't want to take up any more time since this is an unedited, extended chat, and it does hold a steady train of thought and narrative throughout. So please, stay tuned for Breaking Walls episode number 55 with David Shields. No matter what we do, we are each other, or I don't see the point of privacy. I think so. There you go, scrambled eggs, toast. Can we get some... Uh, do you have whole wheat or no? no. So palm, rye, we go rye, and, and some, some smoked salmon on the side. Sure. That sounds great. Do and, you want tomatoes, onions, papers? Yes, please. Okay. I'll take what he has actually. Okay. With no onions. <laughs> and do you want the lower side side as well? Yes. Oh. That all uh, sounds good. Yeah. Um, I know. Obviously, one could do. A whole thing on Trump, you know. I, I'm not sure. I have a huge amount to say that everyone else isn't saying, but I'm thinking about it a lot, hugely, obviously, trying to figure out how to write about it. What I thought was very interesting in our conversation around War is Beautiful last year was that we both came to the conclusion that individually we look at undercurrents naturally, just for our own various reasons. Uh, based on uh, our childhoods growing up and who we are, but also to trust our nerve endings. If something feels phony, or trust that it's phony, trust those instincts. Don't let the society tell you that you're wrong. 
And I think that this whole election cycle really made the entire system, it made it paramount that people knew something was up and people suddenly couldn't stop paying attention to it any longer. And it's I think that's point. probably where a lot of the fear is coming from, too. Because we're suddenly realizing we have to be involved in this process. Individually, all of us have some sort of responsibility to play. So, you mean, like, did you happen to hear Lee Siegel, you know, he has this article about who's in the Columbia Journalism Review, and I think he showed up on MSNBC that, that his metaphor about Trump was... Um, you know, like if, if you're on in a subway car and somebody next to you is clearly physically ill, but you move away from them. Right. And that we don't need a psychiatric diagnosis of Trump to know that he, you know, he seems, I don't know, that psychiatrists are saying you can't diagnose someone without, you know, clinical treatment and stuff, but that like he's... He's the kind of person that you would move away from. Like he seems sort of psychopathic or, or sociopathic in tendency, and that we all just laughed. We all thought it was funny or amusing circus act, and now here he is, the Berlusconi-like, Mussolini-like president. It's like it's not so funny, you know. And I don't. Anyway, I, I love the, your idea of connecting our nerve endings, like, okay, there's something about these war photos that feels wrong, and we're all supposed to say, oh, it's fine, and that, like, it's a beautiful metaphor, like, Trump is profoundly, you know, everyone has, has their example, but, you know, of course, him mocking that disabled reporter from sure. the Times, everyone said, like, how could the election not be over? But that we're in this silo, relatively speaking, of a co coastal silos or urban silos where we've been taught that's wrong. Some people dig it. Some people really dig it. I think, so I come from a generally conservative right-wing family, but I, for the most part... In what part, town? New York, Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And I have, for the most part, been educated uh, under very liberal tenses. So I would almost classify myself as a centrist politically because I tend to see both sides, In and I like to preach unity, which I'm not making any friends exactly. right now saying. Well, that's like that. you're you know you're like that sounds like really healthy that like I'm working on this film uh, adaptation of my book Black Planet with with Keegan Michael Key and Franco, and Keegan, you know him from Key and Peele, yep, absolutely. That you know he's biracial and he has this wonderful line. I think he's he's. He's quoting someone, but he says, it's never one story. No one ever, which is beautiful, like it's never just one thing. So you probably have a perspective that's really useful. I think it is useful. I think it's a matter of, uh, the more I understand myself, the more, you know, it's actually, I'm gonna pull something out real quick. And because it's on the first page of your book, really, the, through the letters that you and your father are exchanging, uh -huh. I thought it was very important, and you, you pulled it out, and I obviously wanted to make a significant portion of it. This is on page one of the book? Not wow. actually page one, but right at the beginning. And it's, not to be involved with mankind is not to have lived, join up. Right. And don't stop the world because you want to get off. Peace in the world, or the world in pieces. Right. And I find that those three are essentially a story. One, two, three. They're basically... Let me see those. Let's see. I'll see if they build a story. The reason why I felt that... Not to that, be involved with the world, and then... 
That's a good point. It almost becomes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I find that Thanks. whenever I spend, I live alone. Uh huh. And whenever I spend, let's say, Fort, what neighborhood? Uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh huh. So and actually, so your father comes from Brooklyn. Yeah, from from Brownsville. Okay. Which now probably is one more up and coming. Uh, Not quite hipster. yet, but, but I, I've heard Brownsville is a little on the rise. Well, not really. I, I still, still, still pretty sketchy. I think, or? I think it's still the worst neighborhood in in terms of crime rate in Brooklyn. Wow. But when your father was growing up there as a Jewish man, it was a Jewish neighborhood. Totally. And hundred percent. His parents come from the Lower East Side, right? Well, sorta. I mean. Not, I mean, those are his relatives, more like, okay. who are, you know, like, Rudolph and Joseph Schildkraut are more sort of, um, you know, those are, are more people from, you know, Russia and Germany, and that, um, right, I mean, there's a lot, of, I mean, those guys move to the Lower East Side to go into acting and stuff, but yeah, I mean, there's strong New York roots in our family on my dad's side, for sure. Do you believe that now being here in this establishment, which is really one of the, at least as a as a, a business, Russ and Daughters is one of the remaining Lower East Side tenants. Sure. Do you find that there are subconscious uh, Lower East Side New York teachings that you've been brought up with as a Jewish man? You're, so German and Eastern European Jewish? German and Russian, yeah. Do you find that there are? I read this book recently called uh, "You Must Remember This." I was oh, searching for a, God, a what? What book is that? Jeff Kisselhoff, I think is the author's name. I, I, if I'm wrong, that's a I good title. Know. I like that. It was written in the late 1980s, and all it was was stories on New Yorkers told by New Yorkers, broken down by neighborhoods. And most of these people were born sometime between 1880 and 1920. Uh huh. So they're all dead now. Right. 30 years later. Right. But I found the origin stories to be fascinating because so much of that I had been brought up with growing up in a, a house. Um, I grew up with my grandparents and my great-grandparents in and the not, same house. And not with your parents and grandparents. And you're Irish Catholic or no? Uh, partly so. Irish Catholic and Italian. I see. The family that I lived with was my Italian Catholic side. But my great-grandmother grew up on Cherry Street over here, so I got a lot of more recent history lessons. So kind of like a classic, in a way, like, I, to a certain degree, like Irish Catholic, like, kind of like blue-collar conservative, does it fall into that kind of mode, or not hugely? Uh, yes, but not stereotypically so, And I always found that a lot of, um, a lot of Jewish New York culture is very similar to Catholic New York culture, and I totally. think it's just New York culture. Totally, but it's also, I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by the connections between Catholic and Jews about, you know, obviously sort of famously guilt, you know, and mm -hmm. the ways in which Jews and Catholics process guilt in interesting ways and confession and... You know, that's, there's some fascinating connection. Tell me, James, about... I mean, we can talk about anything from Trump to my new book to... I don't know if I ever sort of showed you this new film I did. I I've think seen I, it, yeah. I, I forgot if I sent the Vimeo link to you, but... Um, 
um, or anything. What, um, I, what I found most interesting about the film, now, was it just yourself, Caleb, and James Franco, who was acting as director and cameraman at the same time? No. There was maybe a very small crew of maybe eight or ten people. There's maybe two or three cameramen. So, gotcha. Right, because there are shots where... Yeah, where Franco, yeah. yeah. What I found to be most interesting, and tell me if you agree with this or disagree with this, I, found, I thought that the fear that was present between the two of you was Caleb's fear of being seen as human and your fear of being seen as inhuman where you feel sometimes that you're disconnected from reality to into books. And I, and I found his homophobia to be very um, familiar to me growing up in New York City. So basically maybe because of my upbringing, I can identify with both of you individually. And I thought that made the dynamic interesting. And I, and I like that at the end of it, he kind of stuck to his guns and you changed. and. That almost seems per uh, and he, perfect. And you say, and he thinks he wins. I, but wins I do. I do love the ending too. I I love those last few minutes uh, so much. So much of what? No, I don't know him obviously. Uh, but I also think your summary is superb. I mean, that I'm afraid that I'm. Forget how you said. It. I'm afraid that I am wrapped in ice. And he's afraid that he's just a human being. I mean, that's sort of beautiful. I think you've summarized this the film in, in ten words. Well, I think there's a what you're sharing common is uh, the, what we all feel. That's the the fear of vulnerability. Exactly. And I think I don't know if you agree. I mean, you know, some people like the film, some people don't. Some people just think it's sort of. I thought it was a fascinating. You know, it's a weird thing. Exactly. And then basically. My friend, the novelist Victor Laval, saw it at a at a a, a a writers' conference and said, "It's it's one of the only times he has seen on screen genuine discomfort." Isn't that, that's such a great phrase. I mean, I feel like so many films, like for instance, a film that I think is wildly overvalued as. Is Manchester by the Sea? I don't know if you saw it. I have not. But it's really bad, I think. But the one good moment is Michelle Williams, you know, who's always good, kind of starts going on a crying jag, and it's really powerful for you know 45 seconds. But you know that I feel like there are moments with Caleb and. Me and even 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 Franco, which are, I thought his, his few moments on screen were very powerful. I agree. Seeing you undressed, relatively, I think he's sort of good. I mean, I think it's one of his better performances. I think he he shows up in three short scenes, and it even he even has a, a film arc to it. Starts out certain, he gets more certain, and then in the, the third section, I feel like I question him relatively effectively, where I say, you know. How dare you um, pretend that you don't have these same issues as well? And he goes, he kind of admits that, of course, we, we all are a mix of that. Right. And I, and I like that he, in some ways, as director, 
called both of you guys out when he felt was necessary, but also was receptive to being called out. And so, so that's the human It was so dynamic. beautiful. It was so beautiful how he, he was a relatively laissez-faire director who, who nevertheless beautifully guided us toward the more nervous moments. Well, and I like that Caleb, he was not beyond reproach. He was willing to discuss his points of view, which so often people are not because, especially when you have such a strong, seemingly black and white point of view, right. generally you just refuse to acknowledge any other... And, and it's, Me or no, everyone? in general, in general. Me or everyone does? Or I think everybody does. Right. They refuse to acknowledge the other side because then you might have to come more towards the center, which is in some ways yeah. everything that's going on in America. I was just about right to now. say that I think I'm trying to make some connections here between saying, you know, we're talking a little bit about other people take the mistake. We're talking a little bit about Trump. We're talking a little bit about, I think you're totally wrong. And I was just just walking here from my hotel and I saw this, uh, I really like this um, image I saw on the street, which uh, I'm, I don't know if, you're, if your podcast will pick up this image, James, apparently not because you're not a visual medium, but um, you know, it's this, this wonderful thing that just says dirty projectors on it. And you know, it's just some anodyne thing, but to me, it's a powerful metaphor, which I'm going to probably try and talk about at, at my reading or talk on, on Monday at, at, at McNally, which is that, you know, that we all have dirty projectors, that we all have, you might say, smudges on our glasses lenses. And that to me, I feel like the core of my work, which I guess to me, trying to make a connection between, on the one hand, Trump conversation, other people, the movie, is that... To me, the way I like to say it is the only way past is through, which is to say... Exactly. You can't go around things. Exactly. You have, and also, you have to acknowledge your own dirty projectors, that whether we're talking about Caleb and me trying to understand each other, trying to understand, um, to me, the core of my book, Other People Take Some Mistakes, the only way I can understand, say, Bill Murray is by doubling down on who I am. And then I might actually understand Murray. And so too, the only way I can understand myself is to upload, say, a bunch of bumper stickers. Like, it's sort of like that we, that we live through other people and other people live through us. And then we have to acknowledge our own dirty projection lenses. And that basically what makes everyone so why steam comes out of our ears so much about Trump, of course, is that he either pretends not to see it, and this is the sort of $64,000 question for me, does Trump really not see his own dirty projectors and not see what an insanely psychotic view of life he has? Or I don't actually or, believe that he genuinely has that view of life, though. I think that it, most of this is a put-on. I agree. I mean, or... Does he, is he a kind of gifted performer? Absolutely. Who is very good at saying, like, I don't know if you caught him, you know, I'm staying in my hotel, so I'm catching up on my work and throwing MSNBC on the channel. And, you know, he's saying, it was all the Democrats' fault that the health bill failed. I blame it totally on Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer. And... That's so preposterous. 
I, I think to your point is Trump doesn't believe that. No, he's, he's just he's playing a role. Exactly. And apparently, apparently, according to some people, in a way, he's sort of the least that he's almost has almost no interest in actual politics. That he's almost he is literally playing the president. Well, in some ways, I guess I really wouldn't blame him for having no true interest in politics, considering what the political climate is, but and it's interesting that our conversation has gone this way immediately, because if I looked at my notes that I wrote down, the next thing that I have written is, should we be seeking pragmatism and not perfection? Which is something that, when you talk about Tiger Woods in your book, and um, why people celebrate his, his shortcomings, and I think... We do that a lot in America. We build people up almost so we can tear them down. Totally. And I, mean, I wonder if that has to do with just our own sense of insecurity as a young nation compared to Europe. And I, since the last time we spoke, I happen to have gone from having a moderate interest in New York history to an extreme interest in New York history where I've been reading book after book on it. Wow. Because I find that there's so much history that's gone on in New York in 400 years that if I study it long enough, it can teach me things on how to... For instance, the Soho art movement in the 1960s and 70s. George McCunis basically figuring out ways to rent lofts illegally and then eventually making it legal. How do I go about doing something similar? Right. Take those, you know, other people's take on how to do something like that. Anyway, the point being that New York in some ways is a magnification of America as a whole. And throughout history of New York, New York wanting to be seen in, you know, on par with London, on par with Paris. And I think that that carries through in American politics and American social culture. Just what does? How, Namely what? We got the biggest dick, basically. Look at us. And I think that's a very sophomoric way to, to view life. You know, um, I'm not necessarily saying that a European country isn't any different because I'm a New Yorker. So right. my perspective is what it is. So, like, how is it, like, how is building up these Soho laws kind of a biggest dick gesture in the sense, in what no, sense? No, I don't think that's a biggest dick gesture. I think that's ingenuity how do we go about doing something good and i think what we're seeing here and what you do such an admirable job with is i have i had a sixth grade social studies teacher who used to say use the test to take the test meaning there That's might be beautiful. answers to other questions and the answers to other you know in other questions there might be answers to and uh, if we study the history long enough without getting lost in it and not living in the present i think we can figure out the solutions to there's no emotion, there's no point in time that has not been at some point experienced one form or another. Right. That's beautiful. I think, um, well, you know, any, we can talk about anything, James. Like, I'm trying to think of something, just like in the movie, I'm trying to sort of direct the movie toward film beats with... Um, Like, I'm sort of stupidly trying to build this towards some sort of unity so that as we, you know, that when when you put this up on the podcast, that it's not just like David and James sort of shoot the shit for two hours about whatever. I'm trying, you know, maybe naively, I'm trying to sort of say, okay, I feel like the one thing that holds all this together is... 
the siloing, the whole idea of silos, which, you know, people talk about a lot now, that we're all trapped in our own cultural silos, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. The youth team, even the phrase wall breakers is trying to break out a silo. And, um, you know, I, I'm very interested in this phrase. I, I was in L.A. a month ago, and I heard this guy use this phrase called... Um, I just think it's a great phrase, virtue signaling, that basically, that when you put something up on Facebook and you're saying, you know, wasn't this a racist thing that, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions said or whatever, you know, you might be usefully pointing out somebody's racism, but what you're essentially doing is signaling your own virtue. Yes. Isn't that a good phrase? Absolutely. Virtue signaling, apparently people, you know, of your generation, use that phrase. And my daughter's 24. You're probably older than 24, but how old are you? 30. 30. You know, I, I can't tell how old people are anymore. You know, and I'm a whole, you know, a whole generation and a half older than you are. But um, um, isn't that a powerful idea? I mean, it's so much the core of of my work is to empty out virtue signaling because that's the end of discussion. The moment you are signaling your own virtue, um, what can we talk about? Right, and the, the, thing, the gesture I make, which I find is relatively useful, I hope, the area I sort of double down on, whether it's talking to Keegan-Michael Key and Franco and trying to make a film of Black Planet, talking to Caleb, and howling at the moon, writing about Tiger Woods and saying, I, unlike you, can admit I wanted Tiger Woods to fail and fail badly because we need to pull our heroes down. You know, that I, I don't ever signal my own virtue for better or worse. And I think, I mean, to connect it back up, that might, to me, it's like, Profoundly Jewish gesture. To not signal your own virtue? Well, that's a good point because I can hear the irony in, in your question because there's a whole school of Jewish thought which is highly moralistic. And in a way, that's the culture I grew up in with my parents. You know, of. Uh... Do you have any sparkling water? Sure. Let me score some sparkling water thing. So, what was I going to say? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament teaching of may the first without sin throw the first stone. There you go. And I find that it's a natural human inclination to, at times, you know, ride the, the pale white horse, basically. Of, and say I'm of, the hero. Yes. And that's it. Yes. I think some, you know, I think you're very hard on yourself. And I really appreciated our first conversation a couple of years ago for a lot of reasons. One, based on your education and your literacy, for me to be able to hold my own end of the conversation, thank you for that, because it was in some ways a marker for me to say, hey, you can sit across the table with a guy who went to Brown and shoot the shit with him. But yeah, you shrug your shoulders, but we, we always have those moments in life where we say to ourselves, okay, you know, like you can handle yourself right. in a situation. But I also found that what I find similar in myself to what you project and I think you're a very transparent person in that you are willing to discuss what you think your own shortcomings are, but in some ways that is what's empowering at the same time. Thank you. That's really beautiful, James. I mean, I think you hit on something really true, and I do think 
that Times book review, I don't know if you saw it, you know, it, that's what the guy praised, I think. But to, I mean, I guess I would say a lot of things, which, which, which really does fascinate me. Like, I don't see why everyone else isn't like that. Like, part of it is, is a literary strategy on my part, I would say. Like, I've carved out, for better or worse, a niche which is that. Like, I don't know if you heard the Brett Easton Ellis podcast with me where where this guy James Walcott, who, who writes for, for Vanity Fair, said, this is the only honest literary conversation I've heard on a podcast in 30 years, or something like that. I'm like, really? I mean, I was just being honest. Like, like I don't... Like, there's a line of Harold Brodke who says, I don't see the point of, of privacy. And I think you are right. There's something that's weird in me that is... Like, part of it is a literary strategy, part of it is I'm a personal essayist, but part of me, I guess, is this huge sort of TMI guy who, like, I'm so bored with being polite and sort of, let's put on a mask, and let's have a conversation with James Scully and present a literary persona where I act very Olympian and, like, huh? Like... That just doesn't interest but me. But you also just described every reason to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, tell and me. why people would feel like they want oh, to vote for him. That's beautiful. That's a great of, connection, James. When I watch, see, what I what I found with the election cycle, being somebody who didn't necessarily support either candidate, which is very hard for me to say publicly. In New York. In New York. And, of course, all my friends who six weeks earlier were supporting Bernie Sanders, who I do support a lot of his ideologies, but he's a Brooklynite, and he has a very similar sense of the world that I do. The way that, that Bernie talks is exactly like my dad. Like, the way that, that Bernie talks with his hands, like, he yeah. goes, millionaires and billionaires. I mean, like, that's my dad. I mean, totally. I do think, in, in some ways, he's an, he's an idealist. And he's a very. He's become a very effective politician. He has, and I do think that people who don't support him can at least acknowledge that he's genuine with what he believes. I think he's ge he's genuinely running for president in twenty six at twenty uh, twenty. And he's a remarkably cogent. You know, how old is he? Seventy six or something? Eighty. I I love Bernie Sanders, but I love your point though about Trump because I'm trying to write. I'm, working on something else now, but I'm ho I'm hoping, planning to write a book on Trump. That a friend of mine gave me this idea. She goes, you know, why don't you, I don't know if you know my book, James Black Planet. I do know Black Planet. Do you, do you know that? And that basically, you know, as you know, a diary, quasi diary, pretends to be a journal of a season, but it's a highly curated journal that uses uh, NBA season from 20, 20 years ago to explore questions of race. And I think it's weirdly germane now. Even, you know, it's, it's dated in some way. That's why that we're making a film of it. But my friend, the wonderful writer Melanie Thernstrom, suggested that I, I, I do a diary of, say, it doesn't even, even matter. Trump's first 100 days, the second 100 days, his second year, you know, anything, you know, Hanukkah to Hanukkah or whatever. And just think about Trump. Just do my, do those sort of riffs I do on people, you know, whether uh, that riff from the book on Get Smart or 
a riff on Bill Murray, Tiger Woods, George Bush, James Fry. Just a series of very brief. I mean, Trump. I am. I'm bottomlessly fascinated by him, but not in a polemical way. Like, yes, I have the you know sort of lefty opinions that everyone I know has, but, but I don't think you'd be entrapped by them. Exactly, and which I, is important. And the book would not be. Guess what? Trump is a really bad dude. Like, it wouldn't be that. And I really love your point, which is a very associative connection, James. I was blathering on about how I'm bored with people's masks, blah, blah, blah. I do think it connects back, as I connect everything to stuttering. As a kid, I had a horrible stutter. still have remnants of it it now. And I do think I love the fact that in writing, I can say what I want to say. In speaking, I can speak now in ways I couldn't as a kid. And that, like, I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to say what's on my mind because... As, as you should. No, but as a kid, like, I couldn't talk. Right. I, I was a fucking alpha man. And so the fact that now I can speak relatively fluently and as a writer I can speak, you know, quite fluently or whatever, like, I'm not going to waste my relative command of words on bullshit, if you see what I mean. I do, absolutely. And so, like, a lot of my books are even about that, like a novel, like, Dead Languages or whatever. And so, your point, though, is a beautiful one, is uh, Trump is appealing because of that reason. I mean, I think it's a performance, but it's a winning performance because when he says stuff like, I prefer my war heroes not to be captured the whole McCain thing it's a brilliant fucking line it's such a low blow but a brilliant low blow at the same time and And would Trump have come up with that or did somebody write that for him no I actually think he probably almost said that off the cuff really yeah I do keep in mind that he's a New Yorker so he's going to be gruff no matter what compared well, like to other people. But to me, he's like he's very queen to me. Like he's very not clean? Queens. He, queens. You know, he's from Queens. Yeah, his father basically built Queens. And then basically, he has total outer borough resentment. Of, like he's like he doesn't really matter what he accomplishes. To me, he's super. Like total outer borough resentment. Because he's never been a Park Avenue elite. Well, I guess he is now, but he sort of knows the cultural that you know he still wants the approval of you know he sort of crushes out on celebrities. Sort of knows he's not. He doesn't have the right stuff. He knows he's not anything like the financial whiz he pretends to be. He knows he's not sophisticated or smart. I don't think he's a fool by any means though. He's savvy. He's savvy in a certain way. Definitely I would consider him to be a street smart kind of guy. Sort of. I mean we could argue about that but I mean he was you know he was handed a a running start of between 10 and 20 million dollars. He was. And if you had put that money in a money market and not gone to Tahiti, not touched it, he would be worth more now than he is. You know, he would be worth more than he is now with all of his ridiculous... You know, it's really important to push back. I guess I'm sounding sort of polemical, but he's not a financial wizard. Well, it's like, it's basically the premise of Trading Places, the movie. Uh Uh-huh. Where 
if you give anybody a running start of ten million dollars, they're gonna they could blow through eight of that and still have two million left exactly. to figure it out. Exactly. But um, in any case, talking to you, I really want to write this book on. I'll see if I can actually do it. But you know, I'm the kind of person who I'm staying at a hotel a couple of nights ago and in Denver, and I'm. Uh, you know, I, I watched the entire Sean Spicer press conference and I'm, I'm madly taking notes on everything he's doing, you know, like, it's almost like I'm starting to write a book already. So anyway, I'm not sure of where well, we're going. No, but you know, it's funny that you say that because the other side of the coin to Trump was Hillary Clinton. And I think, well, first of all, there's a reason why in 2008, when... Barack Obama burst onto the scene, he won the primary over her. And I think when you look at 42% or thereabout of females voting for Trump... It's that high. It was that high. And also, the amount of Republican voters was basically held even, or even a little bit less, in this election cycle than the Mitt Romney cycle. But there were several million less Democrat voters in this election cycle. Right. And I think the Democrat machine... You know, vastly uh, underestimated how much people dislike the Clintons. Sure. With good reason. And if you, when I was watching the Democratic primaries, now I will, I don't know if I want to admit this, but I will. I'm a registered Republican. That's what happens when you're 18. And, I am leaving. Which, I am not continuing with this conversation. Which actually I said to myself, it's, it's probably a good time to be a Republican that's now. That's fascinating. Because, uh, You're like a spy in the House of Love. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, but I wouldn't really identify as a Republican or a Democrat at all. I would almost say I'm more of a libertarian, although I believe in good did government. Did you vote for Trump? No, I, I, I did not vote in the presidential election this year. Wow. I voted down ballot election, but I, I could did not bring myself in good conscience to, to vote, vote for, for either. And people were very Would you have voted for Bernie? Yes. Would have voted for him. Which my family would have ripped me verbally a new asshole over that. Over voting for Bernie? Because he's a self-proclaimed socialist. He's a self-proclaimed socialist. A democratic And my counter to that is, well, what would you call FDR? That's beautiful. And then people can't just really respond to that. Uh, but, uh, to make a long story longer, in watching the, the Democratic primary debates between Sanders and Clinton, what I like to do, and I think it could be because I grew up listening to the Golden Age radio. We were talking about Fred Allen so earlier. Did I. I mean, yeah, I, I love all those guys all the way up through. Like, for me, perhaps we can do a whole thing on stand-up because I'm obsessed with stand-up from, you know, you know, I don't know how, where one would... Would date the origins of it to, you know, you could say the Book of Job is the first stand-up comedy, but you know, all the way up to, you know, Amy Schumer. Like I'm obsessed with stand-up, and but anyway, tell me your point about how how well, we got was, from I Trump was, to stand-up. I was watching the Democratic primary, and when Sanders would speak, I would watch Hillary, and when she would speak, I would watch him. Because I can listen to him and watch her at the same time. Uh huh. I would say that I grew up Catholic and went to church every Sunday, went to a Jesuit Catholic high school, right. but felt no sense of spirituality until much later in my 20s. Uh -huh. And now find that I have a very strong sense of spirituality, wow. which is important, I think. But on this biblical tone, I found her body language and her eyes specifically to be very serpentine the entire time. Uh -huh. And it made me dislike her when I didn't really feel a very strong sense of dislike for her. I mean, other serpentine than, in what exact sense? 
I mean, serpentine means sort of snake mouth, right? Yes. So how how so? Her, whenever Sanders would talk about the things that she's done in her life, I don't want to say things like, well, you know, you claim to be about women's rights, but you stayed with your husband. Obviously, that's a political marriage. We, you don't have to be a genius. I'm not right. saying there isn't some sort of love in there as well. But I found, the, and this is hard for me to project now, a few months later, without sounding ignorant, but her her, her motion and her, she was kind of very slithering towards him the whole time he would speak. And I didn't like that. Well, she's not. I mean, I think, you know, that women point out how there might be, and probably is, you know, a buried misogyny in some of our conversations about Hillary. But I do think there's something, you know, like I thought she gave great debate performances she did. with emphasis on performances, yes. which is, it's very hard to feel a genuine note in her entire musical repertoire. You know, she's just so unreal, and that, I mean, I have a whole, whole theory, which I think I unleashed in Reality Hunger, which is for a long time, I mean, not without exception, but the person who reads as more, quote, real, almost always wins the presidential election. Exactly. And that, you know, a lot of them are really strikingly so, and certainly Trump and Hillary is exhibit A, that I think it's an amazing performance of his. And who is he behind? How is he off screen? I'm not exactly sure. But Hillary, that whatever that she reads as, she reads as how would you say it? Just, like if you ask her, how's it going? She'd say, well, that's funny you asked. I was just speaking to one of my fine voters upstate and they told me that, and it would be like, it's not so much that she'd impress us with her command of a policy, which she has, but, you know, she, obviously, she doesn't read I thought it was such a good moment in the debate, which I thought Trump won, where they go, tell us something positive about the other person. And Trump said, I like that Hillary's a fighter, which was sort of surprising. And I thought it was a winning moment for Trump. And then all Hillary could say was, he has nice children, which isn't even true. His children are monsters, in my opinion. But, you know, she couldn't... You know, she clearly could not find... That was sort of a practiced answer. Or, or it wasn't real. Like, you could say, Trump's funny. Like, he's got good comic timing. Or you could say, something. It was It was it wasn't a real answer. Right. But anyway, it, it, all these questions interest me. And Like, do you have any thoughts about how I could or should or shouldn't write the Trump book? Does that seem to you a book that seems... Writable. Obviously, a million writers are writing Trump books, but my book would be different, and it wouldn't be a defense of Trump. It would try very hard not to be a takedown per se. It would be an attempt. It would be what I would call a phenomenological investigation of what is this weird thing called Trump. You know. I think I have a few things. One, since the last time we spoke, I did a six-month or so stint as a... I worked for the Dow Jones. 
and it was during the election cycle. And that's probably partly what forced me to want to leave sooner rather than later. Wow. Because... What did you do for downtown? Design, art direction, you know, usual wow. stuff. I was specifically doing design for Barron's Magazine. Wow, I forgot that... Do you have a, a, a BFA in graphic design? Yeah, although my actually my BFA is in communications design. Wow. Which I find to be a very interesting... From where? SVA or no? Crap. From, from Crap. Interesting. Now, at the Dow Jones... As you know, she went to RISD and she works uh, in Williamsburg and lives in, in Greenpoint. And, you know, she's really into all this stuff. When we last spoke, it was right after the Paris bomb, literally a few days after. Oh my God. And we spoke because the day before or a couple days before you and I met, we both happened to be in Washington Square Park. We didn't see each other. We didn't run the into each other. You were with your daughter and I was there with a friend of mine. And I specifically remember there being the Washington Square Park Monument, the Arc de Triomphe, basically, draped in the Parisian flag, and there was a, um, a mobile piano, and their pianist was playing Claire de Lune on the piano, and I stopped, and I, I was standing there for a few moments, and sometimes I think I identify with you in some ways because I think I struggle with empathy. I don't actually struggle with empathy, I just think I do. Right. And I think that's because I looked at that moment and I said, Give me a fucking break. Yeah, like this is so effing phony. What the, what, what's, and so, to take it back to the point of the Dow Jones, next to each other on screens for six months. I don't know if you scored the sparkling water at all, or did we? It's right here. Oh, it's right here. Oh, look at me. I'm a total idiot. Hello. Next to each other on screens were CNN and Fox News on simultaneously all day. Where? At, oh, at Dow, at Dow Jones. Jones. And what I, I had... Thank you. I guess I'm all done. Thanks. Now, I, you come from a uh, politically active upbringing. You guys not. No, I, I do. Maybe on the other side. But I, I think that it's the kind of thing that as you get older into adulthood... Now, I've lived my entire 20s. I'm now 30. I'm not wet behind the ears anymore, but I'm still youthful. Right. But I think you start to become more uh, politically aware because you realize how much it directly affects you, either on a local level or far-reaching, you know, tones. But so, seeing these two news outlets directly next to each other all day for six months. And MSNBC was never on? No, it wasn't on. But CNN, because CNN is hardly the equivalent on the other side of Fox. It's, to me, pretty centrist, but still different from Fox. Sure. It was a huge turnoff for me because it was just, there were stories that were obviously underreported. I'll give you an example. You mean like it was sort of virtue signaling on both sides? On both sides. Right. Like, aren't, aren't we such, you know, we're all Parisians now kind of bullshit and exactly. basically don't, doesn't our heart go out to the bomb victims and where's my latte kind of stuff. It, well, and that's like, when I've, you talked about the crystal knot yeah. glasses. The, the shower, it was a trope of what capitalism means. And, and, right. And I think, I think you're right. Um, I think people want to, well, I, they want I, to pretend, I think you were right in November 2015 right. when you said, and not to cut you off, I'm sorry. No. Um, if you think about Homeland Security and, and all this other stuff, right. there's a lot of money to be made for keeping people afraid, for one, oh. because when I go to bed tonight, will I wake up tomorrow? That whole sort of notion of what if the SS secret police, you know, Russian Ayn Rand fear type-based crap comes here to right. our doorstep, right. which is what these 9-11 um, 
Paris bombings, you know, those kinds of things, they signal when in fact there are hundreds of people dying in Africa at this exact moment. Of course. No, I think it's crucial that, and in fact, I forget how it went, but I'm, I'm forgetting the history, but the Paris bombings, weren't they simultaneous with like a whole series of African catastrophes on those very days which were conveniently left off the front page. You well, know. then you can get into um, conspiracy theories on, you know, something bad goes down in the world, but Kim Kardashian gets mugged, and that's front page news. I could write a book on that. Norman Corwin, the writer Norman Corwin. I think I know who he is, yeah. Norman Corwin was a very prolific radio writer in the right. 20th century. Um, I did a podcast episode that aired December 7th. I did it because it was the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Because there's so much audio available from the Golden Age Radio, I could go back and type in December 7th, 1941 and basically do it a show on this is what was on the air from the moment Pearl Harbor was bombed until Whoa. later in the week. Whoa. That evening, CBS run a, ran a program by Norman Corwin, written by him, hosted by Orson Welles, called Between Americans. And it was basically a conversation, it was very centrist and patriotic, but at least they're talking about, you know, hey, this just happened in the world, and up until this moment, we've been questioning what it means to be an American. Let's examine that so that we can figure it out as we go forward in this uncertain period of time. It wasn't implicitly um, bellicose in terms of beginning. The, the rah-rah. War, war drums and stuff. Not necessarily. I think it was patriotic without beating war drums. Right. There was a moment where they talk about the Gettysburg Address and some voice actor, you know, quotes, uh, you know, of the, the line about, uh, we will little note nor long remember what has been said here today. And then there's a quote from the Chicago Tribune basically calling the dishwatery, flappy utterances of our president who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. Basically, that's the Chicago Tribune bad-mouthing Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln? Yeah. Not FDR, but no, Lincoln. No, Lincoln, because this is about Lincoln. It's, it's quoting, it's going back in time. I see. Orson Welles then comes on the air right after that and says, of course, the rival paper in Chicago took the opposite point of view. Rival papers often do. And it's this moment where it's just bang, right there. And that's 1941, where you're saying, just think. Remember, like, what you hear, really half of what you see and none of what you hear type thing. And... I mean, what is Wells' larger point? Is that it's always a dialectic or...? Yes. Right. So to see those two screens, Fox News oh, and I CNN, drove me out of, of Dow Jones because I said... Now, I'm glad that I'm seeing both You mean, both was it sort of like a pox on both their houses, sort of? Yes. On your part? Because I came away from that thinking, you're all full of shit. And then, is there any answer? Like, if they're all full of shit, who isn't full of shit? I mean, I don't, well, I think I, I don't the man say that who admits his faults is the one who's not full there of shit. There you go. Yay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's always, it's always in those gaps. That's beautiful. And uh, you mentioned that a lot about the, the between moments. And I love baseball. I love basketball. But I love baseball because baseball, for one, it's the only sport that you can watch intently while doing something completely else simultaneously. <laughs> exactly. If you watch a hockey playoff game, 
you gotta really watch. Yeah, because you're, it's impossible. You're actually just trying not to have a heart attack the whole time because the momentum of basketball is the same way. As it is. Whereas baseball, you'll, you might be able to be editing a podcast and the game's on though. Right. I love it. On radio some, or on TV? On both, really. Baseball is also the only sport that I think you can really call properly on radio. I know. A, a great radio announcer is amazing in baseball. I think, take it back to Fred Allen and Jack Benny had that famous comedic feud. I did a show on uh, my last pod, or podcast, number 53, was on what was on the air on radio on St. Patrick's Day through the years, focusing on a few things. Because it just so happened that these big moments happened where Dennis Day, the Irish tenor, returned from the Navy and his first show was St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Fred Allen and Jack Benny settled their feud in 1937 at the Pierre Hotel three days before St. Patrick's Day and then Fred Allen's next show was on St. Patrick's Day. Fred Allen died on St. Patrick's Day. So it was all these uh, little moments where you can hear things on radio that you don't get on television. Like they settled their feud, Jack Benny and Fred Allen. Which was totally fictional? Totally fictional. They were probably Basically, just bosom buddies. Yes. I love and the, it. And the reason why Fred Allen had a, a critically acclaimed but not highly rated radio show at this point in time, Jack Benny was the highest rated radio show. Now, Jack Benny obviously played the violin not too well, and that was sort of the joke. That and I wonder if Jack Benny, I think, was in real life not a penny pincher at all. No, he wasn't at all. He was a generous man. He was incredibly man. generous. And I, I think that's that. why he carried that so well. I love that. Had he been truly a miser, exactly. people would have hated him for lauding himself over there's a moment where Jack Benny and Par uh, sorry, Fred Allen and Portland Hoffa are having this exchange and a, and a telegram comes for Fred Allen. And uh, he asks Portland Hoffa to read it and it's from Jack Benny. And it's a few days after they squashed their beef, basically. And of course, it's not really from Jack Benny. Fred Allen wrote the gag. Right. And it's, you know, happy birthday to you. I know it's not your birthday, but wanted any excuse to send you lots of love. And he says, who said that? And she said, Jack Benny. And there's this pause, and he says, oh, Jackie, eh? And the way he says it, he just starts snickering because it's so obnoxious. The way he's kind of putting it on. But it carries through, in a way, on audio that you don't get on video because you'd be too busy watching him. But because you're listening, just you hear his tone. I love the that. The tone of his voice. Tone is everything. And it is. It's so much of it. it, it um, well, like that wonderful line, Jack, I'm sure that you know that line, you know, a burglar comes up to Jack Benny. You, your your money, money or your life. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking. Which is so possibly dark. the greatest line ever. Never, I know, because the way he says it, too. It's so genuine. You know. Because he does, it's like, there's that wonderful line of, of John Cassavetes, which I think I quote in Reality Hunger, where he says, you know, he was the director of Cassavetes. I don't know if you know his work. I don't. But um, he was also a pretty good actor, and he basically made a living as an actor. And he said, you know, he'd do commercials, appearing as an actor in Polanski movies and stuff. And he said, I can give meaning to any moment even if I am just reading a commercial line, the only thing you have to do is build in pauses and people can hear consciousness. And so when Benny says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, 
we can hear all of human consciousness in exactly. his thinking. Yes. And it's like so much of what I do or try to do is, you know, I try to build in I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you exactly. know. I'm building in consciousness. I'm building in I'm watching Fox News, I'm watching CNN, I'm watching MSNBC. The truth is there somewhere. Yeah, and you, the, you know, it. it's like that would be our topic. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Exactly. I'm thinking, like that might be our, our little mantra here, you know. We're thinking about Trump, we're thinking about Caleb and David arguing, we're thinking about other people, Tiger Woods. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, like, we're trying to build in the pauses. That might be our little trope or something that, you know, I, it's like you and I both love the pauses, you know? It's kind of beautiful. And that basically so much of contemporary political and cultural discourse, you know, is, as we're saying, you know, this endless virtue signaling in which you're not, you're always saying that you're not thinking. You know, I'm Hillary Clinton, I have it all figured out. I'm Trump, I have it all figured out. Fox News, have it all figured out. I'm Rachel Maddow, have it all figured out. It's like, no you don't, no you don't. Because that's not possible. You know, and then basically, you know, this line of Yates, you probably like Yates, you know, the the line of, of Yates I always quote, you may have heard me quote it before, which is, out of our argument with other people, we create politics. Out of our arguments with ourselves, we create poetry. And like for, you know, I really major in arguing against myself. And you talk about that. You know, and that is, that's my thing. But you also identify with George W. Bush at the same time. Sort of, yeah. The other side of the Jack Benny, your money and your life, which is such a human thing, is that as that story builds post that one moment, each time he tells the story to someone new, the amount of people mugging him increases. So at some point, it's like 15 people holding him up for his money, which is such a human thing. He would tell that story over and over again? It wasn't just one time. Right. And each time, now it's 12 people? Yeah, yeah, it starts where now first there's two people, then there's five people. And And that's part of the joke. And that's part of the joke. I love that. The human ego doesn't allow the moment to stand on its own as what it is. And then 15 guys came up to me. And right, I'm still because thinking, I'm a hero now. I love it. No, by the time that the 15 guys comes, he's fighting them off tooth and nail. Oh, he does? Because I think the joke, if I remember correctly, is that the reason why, part of why he doesn't want to get all his money, besides that he's so characteristically cheap, is that he has on his person Ronald Coleman's Oscar, and Ronald Coleman hates him. And they're supposed to be his neighbors, Ronald Coleman and uh, his wife on the show. Coleman hates Benny? Coleman hates Benny, so Benny... Why does he have his Oscar? I don't remember why Why? it's written in that he has Coleman's Oscar. Like, tucked in his little... So when he goes back to tell Coleman the story, he has to tell it in a way where basically almost like an infantry division held him up for the Oscar. And then basically, has he lost... Well, it's like the story does of the he cat. Give, does he give over the Oscar? Or yes, no? of course. Because he goes, here's the Oscar, don't take all of my money. Right. Okay. So it's the story of like your cat, basically, that he thinks he's a tough guy, but really he's a pussy. I love it. That's a good connection. I also think it's interesting that you were at Brown when Buddy Cianci was mayor of Providence. Did I mention that? No, you never mentioned How that. How did you know she, Buddy Cianci was there? There's a show, uh, a radio show, a podcast called Crime Town. It's done by a company called Gimlet Media. 
a lot of the people who work for Gimlet were NPR uh, alum. Are they based like in Providence or something? No, they're based in Brooklyn. But their first season of their show, Crime Town, is all about Providence, Rhode Island. Whoa. And basically Federal Hill versus, you know, the other side of Providence. And I think it's a fascinating look at Buddy Sancy and the rest of the mob mentality Whoa. in Providence. And so much of it, I think you would get a kick out of it. It's, they've done 13 episodes so far. Wow. Because I think it would inform your the way you could write about Trump. Essentially taking the centrist point of view by telling everybody else's stories. I love it. So you don't have to worry about forming your own opinion. You just present other things. Just hand the mic to different people. And then let other people figure it out for themselves. And I, or edit it in such a way that you're making good points, but you're making the points subtly and unpolemically. Well, you have to I don't the narrative, just, right? I don't want to have just a bunch of, like, I finally want a point of view, but, as they say, a multi-layered point of view. But that sounds great, the stuff on Chan. In fact, as a freshman at Brown, I was, you know, trying to be some kind of journalist or new journalist, and I, I suggested, you know, how about if I just explore the mob and, and Cianci and stuff? This is fall of 74 in Providence. And when was he first elected? He was definitely, you know. Was, that was like his first term. Then. Something like that. And people, and I got, I forgot what form the message took. Whether the magazine started getting threats or I got threats or something. But basically I was told to cease and desist. And it was like, or not, yeah, it was like, you know, it was like, I wasn't a very high-powered journalist, just writing for like a, a, the Weekly Brown magazine, but I forgot how it was just called off. It was sort of fascinating. People don't like truth seekers, you know. And I didn't really have journalistic chops. Like, what was I going to do? Spend a year-long investigation into crime? I didn't have the faintest idea how to go about that. I mean, you know. I, that just isn't. You would have, well, the only way to killed. do it would be to basically, <laughs> um, uh, what do you call it, when the, uh, Donnie Brasco, that's the only way to ever really know what goes on, get on the inside. What was, remind me who Donnie Brasco was. He was the guy who infiltrated the, the New York mob, who was basically working for the feds. Right. And I think it's very interesting because. I'd be so nervous, wouldn't you? Like, in the sense that. If you're working both sides of the street, you're working for the feds, you're, you're, you're a part of the mob, and then it's like, I'd be so worried that, you know, I'm wearing a wire, and I start sweating, and the mob is like straight out of every corny movie, but the mob, the mob guy says, maybe the check when you have a moment, and then, if you need us to leave yet, let us know if you need a table soon. But, um, I don't know, I feel like, it's like any performance, one could learn how not to sweat, but I'd be so worried that I'm wearing the water. <laughs> well, and, you know, Buddy Sansi says, you know, we're taking you into the back room and that's the end of your life. Right. But anyway. Well, but I think if you study the signs, you would know when to not show up. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be a, a, a girl. This is just my treat. But. Thank you. You're welcome.
What are these things? Uh, I actually don't eat, some eat sugar right now, but what is the the story you you tell in the book about your chance encounter with O.J. Simpson was uh -huh. fascinating to me uh -huh. because of a few things, and and obviously this conversation with you and I, and I know that you're the kind of person who you say it's easier for you to ask questions and talk about yourself. I'm happy to answer. Oh, good, yeah, thank you. I'm but, happy to answer. Well, I guess what I mean is that in all the podcast episodes I've done, interviews, the encounters I've had with you, I find that I talk more about myself on it than most other things because I right. worry about having a huge ego, so I kind of want to... I don't want this to be you the mean, Gene Scully show. Even in the other about. ones, the guy just goes on and on? Not necessarily. I'm, I would say I'm more of a conduit in those than a participator. Right. But the OJ thing is so... Uh, what we know now type you know it's, it's a far-reaching implication it's such I know there's so many beautifully pregnant details and there aren't they but if you now I think there's people are in three stages and I think you have to go through all of them those who don't observe who are oblivious those who observe and don't act and those who observe and act and I think that was a moment and I don't think you can get to the point where you observe and act until you observe and don't act type thing and I think Sort of what you've been hitting on about your proto um, uh, political, you know, imaginations in, in college when you put the picket sign down. Basically, I think it's easy to pick up, pick up a picket sign and go to Zuccotti Park for a month. I think it's a lot harder to put on a tux and mingle with the people you're supposed to hate because then you see the human side of them and realize that they're not all bad because everybody is lives in the area of gray. But I also believe that that's the only way that things ever really get changed because the picket sign thing is very easy because it refuses to look in the mirror and I believe that that is the struggle with the human existence right now. It's that it's very easy to point out everything that's wrong but if you have to look in the mirror when you're shaving in the morning and say asshole, Thanks a lot. you know what you did was effed up, that means that you're acknowledging it, you've observed it, and now you have to change it, otherwise be consumed with guilt from the face. Exactly. I mean, that, I, I was just thinking that that wonderful Michael Jackson song, The Man in the Mirror, you know? Yeah. I love that song. Because that is how it starts, right? I love that. But, um, I mean, it's not like that solves anything in the sense that... Um, but I think it, it does. It's a good start. Yes. And you have to start somewhere, and you know, you talk about the new age, philosophical spirituality, about being present, things like that, which I think is very important because it's very easy to live in the past and look at the past through rose-tinted glasses. That, totally. If you think about when you look at the past and say, Bill Burr, the comedian, has a great joke about you know us taking stuff from Native Americans, and he's like, right, like there was never a Native American who beat his wife or whatever, please. Uh -huh. You know, like, yeah, there was, there's was. there been pricks and assholes everywhere. It's just that, for the most part, unmemorable people don't get remembered. You remember people for various reasons, either because they rise in the sense that a Hitler kind of way, or they do something extraordinarily fantastic, either in sports or just through public service or whatever, right. so we remember them. Right. But the average guy who lived and died in the factory, nobody remembers who he is. Sure. The story never got told, so... And so what... What is the implication of that to you? Uh, the unmemorable person's life never gets told is what? That we must tell his or her story? Well, I think or... we celebrate the extremes. Right. We talk about Michael Jordan. Now... I hate Jordan. Like, I'm As really... a Knicks fan, I grew up, I hated Jordan's guts. 
Well, I hate the Knicks, so, but, um, but I mean, I hate Jordan. I mean, it's so ridiculous to say I hate Jordan, I've never met him, but he's very Trumpian in the sense that he's very, um, you know, he's very invested in winning and very invested in his own brand, and he really has no spiritual courage and you know, he's a salesman, very effective salesman. He would buy, you know, twenty thousand dollar bottles of wine at dinner just to show he could. And he you know, maybe it's the political part of myself where, you know, he would not oppose Jesse Helms in North Carolina because um, Republicans buy Nikes too. And, you know, I mean, who am I to tell Michael Jordan what to do or not to, but he's not someone who is in any way a usable model for me. I mean, like, I adore Barclay, you know, even though that my piece is more human or he's, he's so messed up and he's just, he's, you know, he's a big bundle of unbelievably moving contradictions. You know, I mean, moving in the sense of poignant. I mean, you know, Barclay seems, you know, incorrigibly human. Whereas, to me, Jordan seems, you know, we're back to Caleb and me, where he just seems lashed in concrete. He has this sort of, I mean, I'm sure, I've heard stories about him in private where he's, you know, he's more likable and stuff. Like, my friend Rick Talender is a sports writer in Chicago who, uh, you know, was like playing one-on-one -on -one with Jordan at a, like a, a, a Bulls practice and, and Talender was giving Jordan all this shit, you know, and um, Jordan was just cracking up because Talender kept saying, you know, you would have been nothing without Scottie Pippen. Like, Pippen was really, and Jordan was just loving it, which is adorable, you know, and like, but... And Rick is this really good athlete and a really good sports writer, a really smart guy. And, you know, not everyone could do that with Jordan. But um, anyway, well, I love that Bill Simmons has been so influenced by me because I, I mean, I agree with that. But how do you say that? Like, I totally has Simmons acknowledged that, or is that something? No, I, I think it's obvious. To yeah, me. I don't know that he's acknowledged it, but it's very obvious that. He's, he's a student of Black Planet. I agree with that. And Thanks I, for saying that. And I think pre... Now, Simmons is gone from ESPN now for a few years. But I think when he was still the sports guy, before he was Bill Simmons, the right, brand. Right, So basically, mid-career Bill Simmons as a writer, I found his, his sports writing to be brilliant. Everything that Barstool Sports and all of these other sports affiliates, and really in some ways, SportsCenter do in not as clever a way. Sorry. Do what? Do and, and write about sports in not as clever a way. Bill Simmons can write the way he was writing because he was a good writer and really paid attention to the right, details. Right. Jordan's Hall of Fame speech is completely unfiltered. Jordan, in I a way love, that is amazing. amazing. I agree. When he get, and first the first thing he did do was thank Scottie Pippen, which I thought was amazing. He got up there and said, "There's no Jordan without Scottie Pippen." Oh, that's it. Which is what he really needed to say in a lot of ways right at the beginning because it's so obvious. But there's another moment which is so great because there's nobody 
telling, you know, nobody's censoring Jordan. And he's right drunk, now. as you can I don't know if you He's can probably tell. a little drunk because oh, he okay. says, you know, when he. Not that I shot the shit out of everybody by picking Thompson or to, uh, to, to induct me. But he said, I noticed the Hall of Fame tickets are more expensive this year. Where's my cut of that? And it's so, for one, valid. And two, it's one of these lines that just, it cuts deep because it's, oh, he had the balls to say that. But then when you step back from it, you say, well, he was right, though, because that's why the tickets were more expensive this year. Yeah, John Stockton, and these are all great players. None of them ever beat Jordan, you know. And I think your feelings on Vince Carter are very interesting because there was a moment, and now we talk about Vince Carter, you know, yeah, going to the graduation instead of getting ready for Game 7 against Iverson and, and the Sixers. And the, Iverson is such a fascinating story because he had Jor, Jordan's determination. I love watching... I adore Iverson. I, I love I, I, I love Iverson so much as well. Hey, uh, like, do you... I'm sure that you know the 30 for 30 episode on Iverson. Oh, yeah, about his, you know, everything that happened in the bowling alley. Yeah. And, He's an amazing figure. But, you know, Paul Pierce tells this story about very early in his career. Uh, he was playing against... Uh, Pierce's career or early Iverson? In, early in Pierce's career. Uh-huh. Which him and, excuse me, him and Iverson broke in around the same time. Like 96, 97. Right. right at Jordan's tail end with the Bulls. He was talking shit to Jordan in a game, and some veteran pulled Pierce aside and said, never talk shit to that man, ever. Basically, like, don't anger the giant. But Iverson was the one guy who went out of his way to talk as much shit to him as possible, and Iverson really ushered in that new era of kind of like gangster, black, urban basketball. And his, you know, obviously, you know, Iverson never won a championship his whole career. But he successfully crossed over Jordan once on one play, that and that lives forever. Thing. I know. Type thing because he did. You it's know. insane. He had the, he I've watched that it. thing probably a thousand times. Uh, me too. It's on my YouTube page. That saved. wonderful thing. And I don't think it's so much that he crossed Jordan over, it's that he called for the ball and wanted Jordan one on one. He had no fear. And also, the joy of it. The fucking joy. Yes. Yeah, or do, do you know that Stark stung? Against, uh, yeah, against Jordan and... and uh, that's insane. Because Jordan, that will live Jordan, one of his... When they ask Jordan, who is the toughest guy he ever played against, Starks is always on the list. Because Starks wasn't supposed to be there. He's an undrafted free agent. His whole career was house money. So what does he care Almost about playing like against a, Jordan? Who's that guy on the Bulls now? Like Jimmy somebody? Jimmy Butler. It's sort of a little... I mean, I guess he has more talent than Starks, but he's a little like that. Like That's all will. You're willing. Right, you're, right. I guess I like... I know what you mean. It's sort of... Kind of brings us back to Obama a little bit. That uh, I'm drawn toward people who embody contradiction. You know, like that I can feel their humanness, like Barkley, Iverson. Again, we're sort of like people who are sort of monumental. Hillary, Jordan are weirdly similar. Trump sorta is a little bit like that. We're like and the people who drive us a little bit nuts, like Iverson or Stark, they're so recognizably human in their contradiction. And I feel like it's part of what I think made Obama a less than successful president is that I mean I like Obama but he was too aware as a writer is of the absurdity and futility of his mission. Like, he has a writerly 
detachment for his operation. And so too Vince Carter. Vince Carter's too smart to think it matters. It doesn't matter if you win X or Y. The check clears. He has talent. He has the love of his parents, the love of his family and friends. There's that wonderful moment. Did you see that picture of, of Vince Carter with that that woman who traveled across from China to, to be at a Vince Carter game? No. Anyway, because she she had crushed out on Carter and like he's happier there than and you know he had this ungodly talent it's like he was part of us loves that American will to succeed a lot again Trump Hillary kind of Reese Witherspoon in the election or Jordan you know that but then part of me I love I love defeat I love defeat I love that Tiger came undone I adore and he's never recovered from it it never will. Like, it's over. His career's over. But he's, he's human, though. Like, it's all very Wings of Desire, you know, that Vim Vendors movie. Yes. Or, you know, like, it's like that we want to be gods, but more than that, we want to be human. We appreciate the heroes like the John Starks because they start flawed. The people like Tiger Woods, we want our heroes to be flawless, and then if they trip up even momentarily, we pull them down because they say, oh, we say, you're just one of us now. Yeah. You know, and then we have to acknowledge you. our own flaws. Exactly. Which are really, I don't believe, are flawed. Are because they? consciousness is, is evolving constantly. I'm thinking of reading that, that Tiger Woods essay. At, I think that essay would play well orally, don't you think? I'm thinking of reading it aloud at a, a bookstore reading. I think it would. I don't think I don't know if it's too hard for... No, but I think people identify and everybody knows who he is. Totally. And everybody knows what... The, I mean, his downfall was specifically one moment. And the interesting thing... You mean the sex stuff? The sex stuff. But, like, it came out at, all at one moment. It wasn't like it gradually built over time. I almost was good when I was writing more heavily for this conversation and I put it down. I found it interesting that the porn star that you had the um, a more long-term affair with Jocelyn James. This is what 2008, 2009. She was a porn star, was she? She was a porn star, yes. Was she? Yes. But who remembers her now? And if you think about industries that have the 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 least shelf life because they're the most superficial. Pornography is like at the head of that class, even more than sports. Right. Ten years later, this woman's probably, I've looked it up, she's like 38 years old now, which in the, the stream of life is incredibly young. But she, when, if in the pornographic life, she might as well be dead. You know, like, who cares? Right. And Tiger Woods plays a sport that you could play well into your 50s and 60s. But his career is over. He would have to go away for 10 years and come back reinventing himself as somebody totally new. Buddy Cianci did that when he won the mayoral election. So I don't know. I don't think I'm making a point right now. Other than no, it's you're you're making connections that all do can all are broadly related. I'm trying to think of how to snap it together in the sense that Jocelyn James, Tiger Woods, uh, Cianci, like how does I guess in a way it's like this whole idea of like how do you stay alive? Like how do you stay I'm done. How do you stay sort of psychologically and spiritually alive? You know, how do you, um, you know, if the cost of success is that that you're dead, like, no thanks. In a sense, there's one the line that I love of... Um, you mean dead on the inside? Yeah. Like, the thing, there's this line, I forget if it's in this book, I can't keep track of the books anymore, but there's a line this guy said about... 
ice, ice tea, they said, this guy said, ice is the only motherfucker I know who will, something like, destroy his career just to stay alive, like just to stay, you know, not to bore himself, and I feel like that's so beautiful to me, like, you know, not that it was that big of a deal, but I thought it was a rather suicidal mission to do my Times War book, the war photo book, you know. Cause well, the you time, call it a lover's quarrel also. Yeah, that's true. And, like, I think the Times, you know, you're not supposed to do that book as a writer. In a way, it's a love song to the Times, but the Times actually matters. And then Times, part of it is like, oh, my God, I can't believe I actually did this. But, well, um, but what you're talking about is also why we're men. And I think we grow up as men with a heroic sense of um, wanting to leave a lasting impression on the world. Right. Because but we, one we're human not... life of 70 years, 80 years is a drop in the bucket, and that bucket is infinite, right? Right. So we hate Vince Carter because he wouldn't mortgage his own sense of self to win championships in the way that Michael Jordan did. Jordan corrupted his own hurt human nature to the point where all he was was winning from everything from card sharking to basketball to you know, gambling to yeah and that you know you probably heard the story which is almost certainly true is that he was he took a year off because he had been found to be gambling and right. that they told him to take a year off not that and for all we know that's why his father was killed Oh, is that right? Well, I, no, I'm speculating. That's, that's, that's an, an ignorant statement. That it was a gambling thing. Could have been a, a dead That's a great connection. I mean, think about the two guys who killed Jordan's father. How random. I don't believe that anything is that random. It's a good point. That's a fascinating connection. Um, I'm sure you've heard the story, too, about how during Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak, you know, supposedly... Kevin Costner was having an affair with, with Ripken's then wife. I don't know what Kevin Costner was doing in Baltimore, but Ripken couldn't get it together to play that that night. And so the Orioles invented a technical malfunction at the stadium. So the game was played? Was postponed. Wow. Isn't that fantastic? That's fantastic. You know, that, I mean, that's there's, if you go online, you'll see plenty of stuff on that. And there's a lot of... Maybe Costner was filming something in Baltimore at that time. Well, he's made plenty of baseball movies. Also. Totally. And that apparently it's true, or at least strongly rumored to be true. And to me, that's such a beautiful narrative about heroes and the invention of heroes. Ripken in person is supposed to be a total asshole. And that... Um, I think anybody who obsesses over something so singular as that... I know what you mean. ...must be an asshole. Because the, you lose sight of the big picture. And yet, you know, I'm sort of an asshole in the sense that I'm terribly devoted to art. You know, I'm terribly... Like, I'm... You know, I'm approachable and accessible. I'm not, like, some lofty writer type. But I'm rather madly devoted to artistic production and artistic, you know, I'm willing to, you know. That's what Caleb also accuses me. And yet at the same time, his accusations come from the perspective of... Um, like a failed artist. Exactly. So is that, 
you know. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, there's this phrase which I like from this book by this lady named Jenny O'Feal called Department of Speculation. And she uses, I don't know if she invents the term or not, or if it's a term, but she uses the phrase art monster to refer to apparently an overwhelmingly male mode of, um, you know, overzealous devotion to art. I think I got a sneeze again. It's okay. But, um, you know, like, it's to me it's interesting that I sort of push back again saying Jordan, but in a way, you know, there's something in me of Jordan. Maybe that's why I dislike him is not that I'm... You mean there's a monster in all of us? Yeah, and that maybe the reason I push back against Jordan is that in my own small way, you know, I'm sort of monstrous too in the sense that, you know, I'm rather passionately devoted to, you know, I don't know if I'm devoted to success or winning, but I'm certainly devoted to, you know, artistic creation and I'm not sure I'm willing to I don't know. I'm just playing with ideas here, but this idea of the art monster interests me, and to what degree I am or am not that. But I'm very, um, you know, I'm very somewhat monomaniacally devoted to artistic. I mean, not artistic success, per se, but more artistic investigation or something. Well, I think the part of the artist that's also in you is that you're very hard on yourself. Because I think you seek answers. Right. And you seek progress. Right. And that in and of itself, and I and I identify with that as well. It's almost a spiritual practice, isn't it? Is. It is. Yeah. Because what you're actually trying to unlearn, I think, is to be less hard on yourself, be more forgiving, to be more human... And by human, I mean um, accepting. You know, I think that this book is more, I don't know, compared to earlier books, I think it is more accepting. But to talk with you, James, you come at stuff from um, such a different and interesting perspective that we're, in many ways, you know, have shared aesthetic. But you also, I like your angle on stuff. It's, you know... No, I, I try to look at things from all sides yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. Thank you, by the way. I appreciate that. And I also, in at some point uh, last year or some point, I was doing grocery shopping on a Saturday, and I just put on our conversation, and I was listening to it back. And it's one of the longer episodes that I've done. How I've long? Probably about an hour and 15 minutes. Right. So I split it up into two different parts. You put it on your headphones and... How does it come through, okay? It comes through really well. Cool. And I think it's one of those kinds of conversations that... What's the core of it? Other than us talking about the book, is there a certain... The core of it, actually, a lot of it had to do with just the the way you were viewing the world at that point in November 2015, the current events of the time. Paris, the, yeah. The Paris bombing. We both, for whatever reason, I think... not You know, you, you think about growing up with a stutter. That had a profound effect on you and how you see the world, but in some ways was very complementary to the kind of household that you grew up in. 
because you grew up in a, a contemplative kind of house. Oh, that's interesting. So by not being able to express yourself properly as a young person, and I do believe young children are very self-aware, we just judge them as adults later on. Right. It taught you to listen. And it taught you to see the undercurrents. And, totally. And I think for me, growing up in a household with 11 people, one of my... Uh, 11 people? 11 people and a dog. Or nine people and a dog, sorry. Nine people and a dog. So you... One of my heroes is Studs Terkel, who grew up in a boarding house in Chicago. Right. And that boarding house kind of mentality, meaning there's so many people in one house that there's always an argument going on, there's always a conversation going on. And my grandmother always tells the story that as a young child, in, in, a, in the uh, infancy stage, I was always happiest by just being in a room where there's commotion going on. Just listening. Yeah, and I always joke that like I could be disarming bombs for a living because I grew up in a house where you have to find your voice amongst all these loud people. But I think our individual upbringings, there's discussion happening at all times. So it teaches you to look for things and yet form your own opinion at the same time. And I think that's everlasting the rest of your life. You can't get away from that once... It's the old, like, once you know something, you seek more. So, you can't unlearn it. Right. That's powerful. I mean, I think of, um, I may have quoted this to you before, but this whole thing that this psychiatrist told Stephen Colbert, which is a very hard thing to acknowledge, that the worst thing that ever happened to him is also maybe the best thing, namely that, you know, Colbert's father and one or more of his siblings were killed in a car wreck when Colbert was a relatively young man. Died, car wreck, and I think, I forget if his mom died or brother and sister died. It was this obviously cataclysmic thing. And on the one hand, Colbert will spend the rest of his life grieving the loss of his father and siblings, but also it was the catastrophe that in many ways has fueled his comic persona. Thank you very much. Which is full of a certain kind of agony and energy. And that I, you know, obviously, again, not comparing stuttering to that kind of catastrophe, but it was a pretty real... It makes you less than human in the sense that you don't... The defining aspect of being human is that we have, have speech. And when you can't talk, especially in a highly, highly, highly verbal family and culture I grew up in, all my cousins and all were all verbal stunt pilots. I was like, you know, that it made me less than human and it fueled an insane desire to succeed beyond measure, you know, you know, to become this very devoted writer. So in a way, this thing that I hated about my childhood, in a way, I couldn't be more grateful for because, I mean, I'm fascinated to know, it's a ridiculous, what would I have been without it? I don't know, it's an interesting question. I haven't stuttered. God, what would I be? I don't know. Would I be a writer? Probably, but not necessarily. I think that's a fascinating question. It's so ingrained into who you are that it's you aren't who you are without it. Exactly. So, I mean, it's so, so interesting. But, um, anyway, it seems like one thing haunting this whole discussion is, uh, you know, flawedness, 
humanness, weakness, doubling down on weakness, um, nothing straight was ever created out of the crooked timber, timber of humanity, to quote Isaiah Berlin, who I think was quoting Kant, I think. You know, that whole idea, like, that's core for me, you know. I think it, nothing straight was ever created out of the crooked timber of humanity. Isn't that beautiful? The crooked timber of humanity. And I think what, what, what I seem to love is the crooked timber of humanity. And I, you know, I tend to cast a rather, you know, I guess in a way, it's moving to me people who pretend not to be crooked timber of humanity. Like, you know, like whether it's Jordan, Trump, Hillary, it's like, you know, give me, it's like, come on, we know you're human. Do you know what I mean? Embrace it, own it. Exactly. They're not really flaws. What What's a flaw, really, if you think about it? I know what you mean. A flaw is something that society gets together and decides is a flaw. I know what you mean, like, okay, Tiger paid all these whores, you know, to screw them every way, but Sunday it's like... Well, think about what that means for his self, how low his self-esteem was. Totally. To do that. I know and nobody wants to help him. And it's like, it's like, gee, that we're shocked that a guy who's, you know, has so much money, he's on the tour all the time, and it's like, I don't know, it's sort of like, like, that we all pretend, like there was something that happened recently where everyone had to pretend that, that we were appalled by it, but no one was appalled. I guess maybe it was the type, like what, I'm trying to think of something happened recently. Where people, where I, I'm thinking to myself always, how dare you pretend to be morally outraged by that when there's this kind of, again, it's the sort of virtue signaling. Like I just hate that so much. And I think to tie it back to the election, I think people who voted for Trump feel that most of the left wing is that way. I think it's true. Which is which not is, an accurate picture of humanity. Which either. is ironic because of course from the left perspective, people on the right, at least some portions of the right, are also in this weird, you know, kind of Christian crusade, you know, we're going to vote for Judge Gorsuch because he's not going to allow abortion. And... Uh, there's also, of course, a right-wing version of that that's terribly morally inflexible. But I think I can see, of course, how the left, too, is full of tremendous moral self-congratulations. I wonder if it's just that no matter what we do, we are each other. You know, that's it's beautiful. like within you, without you, the Beatles song. Wait, well, that's a wonderful line. Tell me how it went. How did you say that? Without... What did you just say? I don't even remember. Um, no, no matter. No matter what we, no matter what we try to do, we are each other. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Sorry, I got to write that one down. That was a good one. No matter what we do, we are each other. That's beautiful. But um, is there something you'd like to close on today? Now, uh, wait. The movie is it officially out yet? It is out. It's out on. Um, I'll quote you, James Scully. Thank you. But um, but um, 
what will I close on? Well, you've got I mean, other people take some mistakes. There we go. We got which is a quick read, by the way. It's it's easy to digest thank because you. I, I think it speaks to everybody. Thank you. And in a way that you have have summarized the book, James, in about nine words. No matter what we do, we are each other. I mean, that's the book. That's the fucking book. And also, it is totally. I think you're totally wrong. A quarrel, the book and movie. You know, again, not to do this as some kind of. Uh, they are companion They pieces. are companion pieces, and they're basically... Um, I do think they are companion pieces, and I think they are hugely held together by that wonderful phrase, which I think ought to be the title of the podcast, James, of this podcast. Of this podcast? No matter what we do, we are each other. That is so much the core of what the book is about, the movie about, both released on February 21st, the film's available on any number of... Uh, Amazon, iTunes. All those things. And um, it's been a delight to talk with you. Same here. And all good stuff, man. Yeah, thank you. Great. David, thank you again for your time and for treating me to a delicious brunch and an even better conversation. As David mentioned, his latest novel, Other People Takes and Mistakes, is out and available in both hardcover and Kindle format through Amazon. I'll include the link to purchase and the information within this podcast, as well as a trailer link to I Think You Are Totally Wrong, A Quarrel, James Franco's adaptation of David and Caleb Powell's novel. Two of David's other novels that came into our discussion, War is Beautiful and Black Planet, are also available on Amazon, and I'll include links to purchase those as well if you're so interested. There might be a great many things that you, the listener, disagrees with in listening to this conversation between David and myself, and that's okay. As David would say, these thoughts and expressions aren't meant to be be-alls and end-alls. They're meant to be conversation starters. We've got to notice things, and we've got to remember that there's always more than one side of any story. It's important to look at as many sides as possible, in my opinion, because in doing so, it reduces fear. And in this 2017 world, knowledge is still empowering. As I mentioned on the open, if you've gotten this podcast via thewallbreakers.com or some other web means and would like to subscribe, you can do so via iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls and via SoundCloud at The Wall Breakers. And hey, if you're going to subscribe via iTunes, we would love it if you rated us and reviewed us because the more reviews that we get, the more ratings we get, the more it'll bump up somewhere in that iTunes algorithm that allows more people to discover Breaking Walls. The Wall Breakers Unity t-shirt line is available at jamesthewallbreaker.com shop. These tees, they're 50-50 cotton polyester blend, which means that they fit well and they're great for the spring season and the month of growth, i.e. April. And I hope, guys, that as we inch closer to summer sunny vibes, you've got positive vibes going on in your life. If not, or if so, and you'd like to reach out to me with any questions, comments, or concerns, please do so at james at thewallbreakers.com. Next time on Breaking Walls, I'll present a behind-the-scenes look at the Mummies exhibit going on now through January 2018 at the American Museum of Natural History. I got to attend the press opening and receive an up-close look at rarely exhibited ancient mummies. And I'll say, you think about life and you think about the things that go on in our day-to-day lives, the struggles, the paying bills, the stresses, the relationships that we have, and then you see a 3,000-year-old mummy up close, no more than a foot from your face, and it does put things into perspective. It puts that drop in the bucket that we call our time here on Earth in our bodies into perspective. 
I would absolutely recommend checking out that Mummies exhibit. It's free for members. It's expensive. If you're not a member, it is well worth the afternoon visit up to 81st Street on the west side of Central Park. Until the beginning of May then, guys, please remember, bust through those silos as much as possible and keep getting out there and keep breaking those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 55. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.